Welcome to the Words of Wesleyan, a podcast from the Shapiro Center for Writing, where we explore the words and people that shape our university community. On today's episode, we're talking to Professor John Murillo and Luna Dragon Mac Williams, two poets involved in the Wesleyan community. Each of them will read a segment from a written work which has been influential for them, and then speak about the role of writing in their studies and lives. First up, we'll hear from Professor John Murillo, an assistant professor of English, assistant professor of African American studies, and director of creative writing. He is the author of the poetry collections Up Jump the Boogie and Contemporary American Poetry. His honors include a Pushcart Prize, the J. Howard and Barbara M. J. Wood Prize from the Poetry Foundation, and most recently, the $100,000 Kingsley Tufts Award for Contemporary Poetry. Here's Professor Murillo. Hey, hi everybody. My name is John Murillo. I'm Assistant Professor of English and Director of Creative Writing at Wesleyan University, and I'm a poet. It's so great to have you here. Uh, what are you going to be reading for us today? Today I'm going to read a poem by the poet Martina Spada called Imagine the Angels of Bread. This is the year that squatters evict landlords, gazing like admirals from the rail of the roof deck or levitating hands in praise of steam in the shower. This is the year that shawled refugees deport judges who stare at the floor and their swollen feet as files are stamped with their destination. This is the year that police revolvers, stove hot, blister the fingers of raging cops and nightsticks splinter in their palms. This is the year that dark-skinned men lynched a century ago, returned to sip coffee quietly with the apologizing descendants of their executioners. This is the year that those who swim the border's undertow and shiver in boxcars are greeted with trumpets and drums at the first railroad crossing on the other side. This is the year that the hands pulling tomatoes from the vine uproot the deed to the earth that sprouts the vine, that hands canning tomatoes are named in the will that owns the bedlam of the cannery. This is the year that the eyes stinging from the poison that purifies toilets awaken at last to the sight of a rooster-loud hillside, pilgrimage of immigrant birth. This is the year that cockroaches become extinct, that no doctor finds a roach embedded in the ear of an infant. This is the year that the food stamps of adolescent mothers are auctioned like gold doubloons and no coin is given to buy machetes for the next bouquet of severed heads in coffee plantation country. If the abolition of slave manacles began as a vision of hands without manacles, then this is the year. If the shutdown of extermination camps began as imagination of the land without barbed wire or the crematorium, then this is the year. If every rebellion begins with the idea that conquerors on horseback are not many-legged gods, that they too drown if plunged in the river, then this is the year. So may every humiliated mouth, teeth, like desecrated headstones filled with the angels of bread. 
Wow, thank you for that. Um, would you mind saying a little bit about why you picked this piece and what it means for you? Absolutely. So uh, Martin Espada is a poet who's been really important to me over the years. Uh, he's become over the years a friend and mentor, I'm happy to say. Um, but one of the things that um, I love about his poetry is that it's always socially engaged. Um, and that means different things at different times. Sometimes, you know, it means lamenting a social injustice. But in this poem, it means um, providing uh, at least a ray of hope, right? This is a, a, a poem about change. It's about um, uh, the future. And it's been on my mind a lot recently um, because of all the protests that have been going on around the world this past year or so, right? After the George Floyd killing and the Breonna Taylor killing. and you know, even during a pandemic, you see a lot of people out there um, masked up, but in the streets, you know, on the front lines doing very necessary work. So um, when I read a poem like this, you know, it, it reminds me that um, what, what poets do matter, right? But also what um, the activists, what they're out there doing matters as well. Um, and, you know, as much as you might look around and, and want to despair, uh, things are changing and they will change because of you know, the power of the people who want these changes to come about. Mm. What do you feel like is sort of the function that poetry and that writing serve within these social engagements and these social moments of activism? Mm. Um, you know, there's an, an historian named John Henry Clark and you know, he says, uh, you know, if you want to forward a cause, the best way to do it is by doing your best work, meaning contributing what you have to give, right? So, you know, if you're someone who um, maybe you're a great orator, right? Um, that might be your contribution. If, you know, if you're a nurse or a doctor, you can be out there helping people. I think that what poets can do and what poetry and literature can do in general is, um, who said this? Uh, someone once said the job of the poet is to make revolution uh, irresistible. Um, that's that, that's that's cool. I don't know if I agree with that uh, or if I would go that far, but I would say that um, it, it does. It provides an alternative to what we see around us, right? Um, I think a poem like this, like I said, it can give hope the same way a song can, right? If you're listening to Bob Marley and some of his um, songs that deal with social justice, right? It can embolden the person who's out there fighting and let them know that what I'm fighting for matters and I'm not alone in wanting this change, right? A uh, buddy of mine, he says, um, a poem, no, no, he says, poetry may not stop a war, but a poem may stop someone from picking up a gun. So when I think about the power of poetry or writing in general, right, you know, it's, it affects people on a one-to-one -one basis. You know, it may not have as sweeping an effect as legislature, maybe, right? Um, but uh, for the one person who picks up a book and reads, right, or the one person who listens to a song and sees a painting, I think art has that power to affect change. Mm. Yeah, that definitely resonates um, with my experiences. I often find myself sort of as an English major wondering about why I'm doing this as opposed sure. to going into legislature. I feel like sometimes if I'm a smart person, 
then I should try to do the thing that's going to be most effective. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think reaching people on that one-on-one level can be so powerful because you often reach the people who are going to make the change and you can provide them solace and stamina as they continue to work and continue to support them and stand in solidarity with them. That's exactly right. Exactly right. What's that intersection um, between sort of poetry and social engagement been like in your own life and your own experiences? Yeah, um, you know, so going back to that that quote from the historian, uh, Dr. Clark, um, you know, so you look at it a couple of ways, right? One, how can I affect the most change, but also um, what am I really good at, right? Um, I'm not someone who, you know, I, I'll never be an army general, right? <laughs> you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, and, you know, for me, the writing is the one thing that's been constant in my life. So then the question is, how do I then use this to affect change? Um, the intersection for me, you know, because of my experiences, you know, a lot of the writing will be considered poetry of witness, right? So I'm reporting on conditions in Black and Latino communities, right? Um, a lot of the poems uh, are about family uh, matters. But the family is shaped by the larger society. So even when I'm not speaking directly to maybe societal or sociological concerns, right? There's still a bit of that in the poetry. Um, so for me, it's just been a matter of, of writing my story and the stories around me and uh, allowing the conversations at that point to kind of linger and be there for people who want to engage them. Um, and you know, a lot of my circles, you know, um, are activist circles. You know, I'm, I'm not. So much, especially at this age, you know, um, I, I think that uh, the way that I can best serve is to write, but also to teach and to really make space for the next generation that is coming after, you know, um, give them the game that I have, but also get out the way and let them, you know, figure things out and, and do for themselves. Mm. Do you feel like your students have a sort of similar view of poetry to you um or do you feel like you see in this new generation like something different coming up um some of them come in with with that view right some of them don't but i really um i don't believe in shoulds when it comes to art right so you know and i think that's the one the reason i kind of pull back from the quote that that i gave earlier about the job of poetry to make revolution irresistible uh, for some people, maybe, right? I don't think that's everybody's job. So for me, what I try to do is, um, you know, I give students the techniques and the skills and, you know, I try to expose them to, you know, great writing from, um, you know, across time and geography and, you know, leave it for them to really decide for themselves, you know? Um, maybe it's not for you to make revolution irresistible. Maybe it's for you to make love irresistible, right? Or maybe it's for you to make, um, uh, I don't know, um, friendship irresistible, whatever it is, right? So, you know, each of us has a different uh, task, I think. Um, and we figure that out on our own, you know, over time. So um, there are students who, who, you know, see a relationship between activism or social justice and, and art, um, and that's cool. And there are those that don't, and that's cool too. Um, but I would say in general, um, students now are a lot more socially engaged than I think when, when I was a student, right? Um, 
I did my undergraduate at Howard University, and um, which is a, an historically black university. And, um, you know, a lot of, I would say, you know, most of the students there were very much aware of um, racial injustices and things like that, right? But it's like any other campus, you have a, a group who is very involved in, um, you know, uh, protests and things like that. You have another group who maybe not, you have groups in, you know, whose uh, aim is to just get through and get a job, right? You know, um, so I would say though now that the conversations I have with students are really, really encouraging because um, students are so more astute than, than I was, even than I am now, you know, in certain ways, you know, you guys are amazing. Well, I mean, I can't accept the thanks on behalf of my generation of students, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if you could sort of speak to the role that writing and poetry has played for you sort of throughout your life um, and sort of how you came into it. Yeah, um, poetry, and by poetry I'm talking poems written on the page to be read, right? Came to me pretty late in life. Uh, I'd say in my mid to late twenties is when I really started reading and, and taking poetry seriously in that sense. Um, but I was always a reader, uh, primarily fiction and nonfiction. And I was a listener um, from a young, young age of rap. And the rappers that mattered most to me were the, um, the storytellers, were the, what we would call poets of witness, right? So um, rappers who were talking about uh, the neighborhoods they came up in and, you know, and social issues, things like that. So they really uh, helped to shape who I became as a poet later on. Um, but uh, James Baldwin, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, as problematic as he, as he is, um, uh, the autobiographies like, you know, Malcolm X's, um, Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, you know, these are really um, important texts for me early on. And, um, you know, I just saw that early on the power of words, to, you know, just really affected an individual. I knew it because I was living it, right? Um, I remember, for instance, um, in high school, I was a basketball player, not a very talented basketball player, but a basketball player nonetheless. So at some point, um, when I transferred schools, and I remember transferring to a predominantly white school, um, so that I could stay eligible for basketball, I was stuck in remedial classes. I don't know if it's that, you know, I just knew there's R next to English. And up until my senior year in English, I was having spelling tests, and learning that a noun was a person, place, thing, or idea, you know. Um, I just thought school was easy. Um, I had classes, there was one class called uh, U, Y-O-U, and it was filled with basketball and football and baseball players. And the class was about you. They'd ask questions like, what's your favorite dinner? You say spaghetti, they say, you're correct, you get an A. So um, not until the last semester of my senior year did I, um, I came across a teacher, Ms. Pavey, who um, saw that, you know, I was reading like one would be reading at that age, right? And she pulled me aside and asked me why I was in remedial classes. I told her I didn't know. So she argued with my counselor to get me into college prep classes uh, the last semester of my senior year. And I sat outside his door while they argued very loudly. Um, and uh, she says, this kid, you know, he's smart, he needs a chance. So anyway, she, he relented. 
I got into a class and they were reading literature. The first book they were reading was Wuthering Heights. I remember that. And they would read books and talk about books. And I, I was pretty angry. I was, this is what they've been doing for these past four years. And, you know, and I'm doing spelling tests, right? So anyway, um, that year, that same council, we had, uh, we had a career day. And I remember um, him asking me, you know, what I want to do. And I said, well, I think maybe I might want to be an English teacher. I want to be a writer. And uh, I didn't even know if this was a thing, but I said to him, uh, uh, maybe I want to uh, teach and and uh, and African American literature. So he looks at my transcript. He sees that I've been in remedial classes for three years. Uh, he goes, well, no, nah, it's not going to happen. You're not going to college. He says, um, but I see you've taken welding and metal shop. You ever thought about welding? I said, no. He goes, yeah, you should, you should think about welding. I'm going to put down welding. So he wrote down on my career day, welder. So two weeks later, I'm reading the autobi autobiography of Malcolm X. And there's this one, uh, I don't even call it scene. It's one part of the book where um, he's doing well. He's a student. You know, all the kids like him. The teachers like him. And he says to one of his teachers that he wants to become a lawyer. And the lawyer says, oh, Malcolm, you know, listen, uh, he, he means well, the teacher. He goes, listen, you know, everybody likes you, you're, you're bright, but a lawyer is no occupation for a, for a colored boy. Um, you go with your hands, you should be a carpenter. Jesus, Jesus was a carpenter. Right? So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, you know, wow, I just, I'm connecting, right? And so um, then and there, I really discovered, you know, literature can really, make one feel not alone, right? It can, you know, it, you can reach out across decades and across uh, the country. Malcolm's writing this from Harlem. I'm living in Southern California, you know, um, decades later, but it connects, right? So, you know, so from then on, I, you know, read more and read more. And um, yeah, you know, it just really gave me a sense of the power of words. Mm. What does, that moment of connection feel like for you when you read something and you realize that you're not alone? Oh, it's magical. It's magical. You know, um, I think, you know, that's one of the, um, one of the powers of the blues, right? You know, um, you, you listen to blues and it's full of suffering and anguish and people might think that it's, you know, it's inherently sad, but no, what it does, it gives people solace, right? It gives people, uh, a sense, okay, not only am I not alone, but someone else has lived to tell this tale and lived through this pain, right? So in some ways it can be life-saving, really. I, I do believe that that can be a life-saving experience. Um, you know, for me, um, it, it's, it has been those things as well. You know, it, it's been life-saving. It's been um, uh, something to just get you through to the next afternoon, right? Um, but also, uh, as a writer, you know, it gives me a sense that what I'm doing matters too, right? So from the other side of it, you know, we've been talking primarily, you know, the power of language and words and literature as readers, but as one, as a practitioner, right? You know, there's always a hope that if you, you know, you might be doing something that might mean something to someone out there, right? A stranger, a reader, um, who you'll never see, but um, to whom you'll connect and uh, for whom what you're doing might actually get them, get them over a hump of some sort. 
Thank you for that. Um, that's about our time, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was so wonderful to talk to you. It's been great. Thank you for having me and um, keep doing this. That was Professor John Murillo, an assistant professor of English, assistant professor of African-American studies and director of creative writing. Next, we'll be hearing from Luna Mack Williams. Luna is a junior at Wesleyan majoring in theater with a minor in education studies and the creative writing certificate. She is a poet, playwright, actor, dancer, jeweler, and arts educator who roots her work in radical compassion and joy. She teaches theater, writing, and their intersection with activism through after-school matters in her hometown of Chicago. Here's Luna Mack Williams. Hello, my name is Luna Dragon Mac Williams, and I use she and they pronouns. I'm a junior here at Wesleyan, originally from the southwest side of Chicago. I'm super excited to talk about writing. I'm a, a poet and a playwright primarily. Um, I've uh, um, I've been published in a few journals. I'm a nominee for a push cart for 2020, which is pretty exciting. Um, so let's hope that goes well. Um, I um, am a semi-finalist in Definition Theater's Amplify Festival for a play I wrote and directed here at Wesleyan last year, actually, called Corazones, um, which is also very exciting. Um, yeah, got a lot of other stuff bubbling in the works, but I'd say poetry and, and playwriting are my, my two big loves in the, in the literary world. That's so wonderful to hear. And what are you going to be reading for us today? I'm going to be reading a poem called Guitar by Patrick Rosal. All right, whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and get started. All right. <clears throat> Guitar, for Sheila who wants to learn to play. The bottom ends a little shallow and you might need to shim the bridge to hush the fifth fret buzz. The action's low and the neck a tad warped, but I swear this thing sings. For 10 years, I've accompanied lovers, convicts, and children with this guitar, bought it with my last hundred bucks, 50 more perhaps than it was worth that day. I just wanted to touch nylon again, to play the way my uncle Eli used to till cancer mugged him for his lungs. He sang, Sheila, and the guitar did too. And that kind of singing was like 11 acres of sky to a nine-year-old kid terrified of a 50 mile per hour hardball. Summer, my father came back from burying his mother in the Philippines. He told my brother and me, the two oblong boxes we pulled off the luggage conveyor were ours. Once home, we pried the cardboard apart, tearing the packing tape and snapping the industrial staples loose with our bare hands. I ran my fingers slow around the slick sound hole edge. I stuck my nose into the strings to smell the jackfruit wood stewing inside. And when I pulled my face away, the instrument made its first silken hum. I don't know if you believe in time the way I do, but when history touches us, it's like hearing a skinny uncle sing with a cigarette dangling from his lips without one note of misery in his dying, and the guitar he's holding is yours. You might not understand the words sailing past you, but one day, years later, on a drive back to Rockland, maybe, where an old woman scolded you as a child or kissed the small bones of your shoulders, you may find yourself singing out of nowhere that tune. I mean to say I never thanked my father for that first guitar. I smashed it in a tantrum against my heel and didn't own another until this one. I should warn you, every guitar has its ghost, and they'll ask you whom you love and how much. 
As for learning, your hands are going to take a little while, but one day, when the chords come easy, the guitar will whisper to you some old secret. Whisper back. The most beautiful intervals are ancient and imperfect. They will teach you to love something so deep, you will want nothing better than to give it all away. Thank you so much for that reading. That was so beautiful. Could you tell me a little bit more about why you picked this piece? Yeah, I mean, um, from the first read, I knew that this was something special. Um, it's like, you, sometimes you hear a song for the first time and you're like, oh, I'm saving this. I'm gonna be listening to this nonstop for the next week. Um, and that's kind of how this this poem was. Um, it, it's, it, the poem itself sings, it's talking about something singing. And I'm like, yo, you're the one that's like, this is magic. This is a little musical. And I, I really love, um, I love a lot of his work, particularly the beautiful way that he like dances between like such sadness and such joy and like energy and love and light, but like it spans distance and it spans time. And he's toying with like these really grand ideas, but rooting them in the very small and very simple and like tender, intimate things like a guitar, like something so, I don't want to say ordinary because it's so powerful, but still it's like, I, I hold a guitar and I feel that power. Um, and I'm always amazed at his ability to like hold so much um, in such a musical way um I really I really love that about this poem in particular um and then also I like I just learned how to play the guitar a few months ago I picked it up I like um I had just I think I I just broken up with someone and I was like I need to learn something new because like I just love I was like it's it's time to find a new obsession and love um and I had a guitar that my parents got me a while ago like a few years ago for Christmas that I wanted a ukulele actually um and when they got me a guitar I like almost wanted to cry because I was like this is so like I just wanted a ukulele because it was like easier and now you got me this probably expensive guitar and now I have to be good at it and now I have to feel bad if I'm not good at it and like my family are good musicians like um music definitely runs in the blood, not like professionally. It's just like my family's like, you know, put on a fucking um, house song and dance after dinner or like whip out a guitar or put on a bachata and like, you know, the, the music is very there. But so over break, during my heartbreak, I was like, I'm picking up the guitar. And dude, never have I felt something more like an extension of my body like I hold it and it's like yo this is a part of me like I'm curling over another limb it's like and it's resonant and it's so cool and like sometimes I get scared that I'm not feeling my feelings enough which is crazy because I feel things so deeply but sometimes I'm worried like oh no am I repressing and then I start to play the guitar and then all the feelings come with the music with the lyrics like it's just it's it's also it also feels like it's a language that like I've always like kind of known I could learn and be good at and now I tried to and it's connecting me to my family because like my family's musical anyway and then also my dad has cancer right now he's doing okay um he's like just finished this round of chemo um but the surgery just kind of got pushed back for a few months um and this is not the first time that cancer's brought down my family and sickness and sadness in general and like distance and stuff. And so a lot of the like explicit content of the poem really hits home um, about holding on to your loved ones. And then just the idea of giving away what you love. Oh, I love that. All of my, I think my big 
journey in writing is to like figure out, okay, not only how can I say these little warm things that make me feel some type of way, but how can I make somebody else feel some type of way? Um, and writing explicitly about that being like, I love this so much. I want you to love it too. And experience that like, that's just so lovely. And the poem itself is a gift and the guitar is a gift. And it's just like, oh, Sheila. <laughs> yeah. What do you feel like is the relationship between writing and music for you? Hmm. I know my poetry, it, it is like percussive and it's like rhythmic. I never did slam team in high school, but my writer friends did it. I did theater instead, <laughs> um, which I, I love theater. I'm so grateful for what it has given me. But um, yeah, but like when I write, it's I'm pulled by like my heart, but also my ear very much. Um, and it's all like a little song. And also that's something that I didn't mention earlier that I love about the poem is that it carries you in this wave, like a little narrative arc that like I I also really love and songs do that too for me where it's like it wraps you in it takes you to the climax and then it like lets you down easy or hard or however um and I feel like writing and music both can do that take you on that little journey um they're both like ways to connect to people um absolute like absolutely I also would say that like my even though I like play music and I <laughs> kind of sing you know my biggest relationship definitely is through dance. I, um, I'm on two hip hop dance teams here and I did ballroom dance when I was little and then did like dance classes in high school. Um, so I've like dabbled in some different genres and styles, but I love social dance and I write so much about like social dance and what it means to listen to another body and like give cues and all the like cultural things about dancing with someone and where the music is from and how you feel and losing yourself in the moment. Um, and it's, it's such a, like a writing to me is, it's a giving over to like a feeling and a possession. And that's like what music and dancing does to you too. Like I, like you probably relate to this. Like we're such like control, like ah, control every part of the <laughs> like music and writing and all these artistic forms are a way to like give over to something more powerful than you, but that makes you more powerful in the end. And like, it enhances your relationship to others um which is super cool to me and everybody has their own like way like relationship to it like the way that I talk about music and art super different from the way you would probably um but like it's always so so personal you know I don't ever want to essentialize the human experience but I think rhythm music words however your relationship is with that is definitely a cornerstone of it however that embodies itself for you. Hmm. I'm gonna hit you with a really big general question. What is the role of writing in your life? Yeah, it, it, it is my life. No, that's what it's not my life. I got other shit. But like, no, like it's a it just I don't know. Like I I say this as somebody who's definitely developed like worked the muscle for years now. So it feels like a practice that I can come home to or like wake up to or be inspired by. And I know how hard that is. And I don't want to make the way that I talk about writing at all, make it seem like it's quote unquote easier than it is because it's hard. It's hard to like be a writer. Like, what is that? I don't even know what being a writer is. But like, to me, it's like, it's like a breath. Like, it's really just like a, 
It's a way to put... I really like the idea of turning my skin inside out and it makes me feel like the flesh is on the outside and I low-key love that. Like, oh, tender, intimate, vulnerable. See me, feel me. And then like, you can give that to somebody. Like, what? I can like make people feel some type of way. Like, dude, when I read a poem and people like, I was in class the other day reading something because we had to bring in like snippets of, of just something and I went and I did my little piece and one of my besties was sitting next to me and they started crying and I was like oh no but because they just broke up with their boyfriend and it was like bringing up stuff but then we talked about it afterward and they were like I didn't realize like like they they said something that just like they the writing felt very like yes like that's how it feels and I think for me writing is such a way of like like going for where it hurts in a way that heals that's okay writing is super healing for me it's this prayer it's this ritual it's this thing that like you you uncover the pain like you literally like mine at it like you get at what hurts and that's scary but you do it so that then it can be exposed to the air and the, can the wound can cure and like ultimately Sandra Cisneros one of my favorite writers she has this metaphor where she's like um when your heart breaks and it's like bleeding and oozing out or whatever, maybe I'm misattributing this. So if she hears this and it's like, Oh, I did not say that. Then she did not say that, but I think she said this. Um, anyway, your heart breaks open, bleeds and oozes and it doesn't ever fully close back up together. Like it heals, but there's still like a fissure, but ultimately that's not a bad thing because that opening allows you to experience like, the energy flows from you to others and their openings and you can get at the core of each other's hearts. Um, and it, uh, and the, at the end of the day, empathy and compassion and feeling things for other people and writing for me is that vessel. It's that channel of like the way to heal and the way to reach out. It's the hand that you extend outward. I lately have been writing so much about this idea of like, what would it feel like to reach in and grab someone's heart? Like, like, not in, like, a gory way, but, like, low-key, like, what? And I feel like everyone's heart, like, would feel a little different. I think mine would be, like, like, those acrylic paints in art rooms in elementary school that are, like, a little crusted over, but, like, really pigmented and globby. Like, I feel like my heart is a big glob of, like, art room acrylic paint that, like, then leaves your hand, like, oh, oh my god, so messy. But, like, that's so fun. Uh, writing for me is very, like, visceral. I'm lately really into like the body and sensations and like, and it's such a good way to connect with that. This is so rambly. And I don't know if I'm answering your question at all, but. <laughs> totally, totally fine. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to close this out here um, by just asking a little bit more about the experience of encountering writing and just what that feels like for you. Is there a visceral component of it when you, when you hear something or read something that just like hits you? Yeah. I mean, like, I, you mean, like, encountering somebody else's words or something that really hits me? Yeah. Um, yeah, I will, like, I, I like to collect things. And so I will, like, write stuff down or, like, rip it out and, like, fold it up and put it in, like, a little jar, like, a little whatever, like, pin it up on my wall. I like to, like, be a little magpie. Um, yeah. Uh, so definitely, it, it there's that impulse. And just, like, holding on to, like, sharing it also I have like poetry friends that like you know we read a good line that reminds us of another person and we're like oh, and then I text it to them right away and I'm like you gotta read this um which is this one 
Um, another really wonderful experience that I've had in terms of reading other people's writing. Um, I teach uh, high school and middle school students back home in Chicago. Um, uh, I did this non, there's a organization called After School Matters um, in Chicago that's been around for a few decades. It's a nonprofit that offers after school and summer programming to teens um, in a bunch of different disciplines. You've got arts and sports and leadership and communication and cooking, like so much stuff all over the city. And you get paid stipends to do it. And we predominantly serve uh, black and brown, low income youth from around the city, people that wouldn't necessarily have access to opportunities like this. Um, were they, you know, char like, did they charge a fee and have that financial barrier as many opportunities like that often do? Um, and so I did that for five years. That's what allowed me to like get into theater, fall in love with it. Then I went back after my freshman year and uh, like assistant taught. And then I started my own program last summer, which is super exciting, super scary, but super exciting. Um, called By Us For Us Theater Making in Chicago's Neighborhoods. And it's really teaching techniques of writing for performance with an emphasis on the intersection between writing and organizing and activism in our Chicago communities. Um, and it was also wild because I had planned the program to be in person, then the pandemic hit and like it was my first time doing it and my first time having a group of like 15 year olds, there's like 14 of them, it was nuts. But yo, those kids could fucking write like, Oh my God, beautiful shit, beautiful shit. And honestly, maybe more beautiful than their writing, which like it was pretty beautiful to begin with was the way that I saw them like fall in love with what they were doing or like feel more confident or like want to share more. Like at first so hard to get any of them to volunteer. Um, and I didn't force it, you know, but like over the course of it, they became more and more like, yeah, no, I want you to read my piece. Um, and I really try to like help them poke around with what they wanted to do. Like I didn't want to tell them, Oh, because you're this kid from this neighborhood, from whatever, whatever you have to write about this experience. Some of them did like fan fiction about v mortal Kombat. I think was like the video game. I've never played mortal Kombat, but I was like, okay, word, we can like explore this connection with like, and then it became this brilliant piece about like writing queer black women into video games, which you like don't see often. And like her wanting representation, but just like, watching that was so cool and I remember having that same experience like falling like seeing something that I made make myself feel some type of way and other people feel some type of way like writing wise absolutely beautiful feeling and then seeing other people feel that feeling also absolutely beautiful um so yeah that's definitely one of the biggest moments for me of somebody else's writing hitting me it's like just them writing beautiful monologues <laughs> Yeah, just seeing each other and being seen and helping people see themselves. It just means so much. And I'm doing it again this summer. I just got confirmed, so that's exciting. Woohoo! <laughs> All right. Well, that's about our time, but thank you so, so much for joining us today. It was so, so great having you here. That was Luna McWilliams, a junior at Wesleyan majoring in theater with a minor in education studies and the creative writing certificate. Thanks for listening to the Words of Wesleyan. This show is produced by the Shapiro Center for Writing at Wesleyan University. It's hosted by me, Anna Cheltvate, and was created by Anna Cheltvate, Amy Bloom, and Stephanie Weiner. Our theme music is Let Me Make It Clear by Professor Jay Hogard from his album Harlem Hieroglyphs. 
Special thanks to our guests, Professor Murillo and Luna Mac-Williams, for appearing on this episode. Thanks again to our listeners, and be sure to tune in next time.